More than 3,000 years ago now, in the land of Canaan, which we know today as Israel, near the great city of Shechem, an unknown seeker began to dig a hole in the crusty soil of the land where he and his family seek to scratch out a living. Never easy, the back-breaking work became harder and harder still as his pick hit the strata of limestone that sits just below the topsoil in this unforgiving land. The sun, we can imagine, was very hot, as it is in the Middle East. The air was dry and dusty and must have burned in his throat and lungs as he worked. But nevertheless, the seeker continued his labors day after day after day. He dug deeper and deeper, sending bucket after bucket of stone fragments up by rope, up the shaft and to the outside world. Months later. At a depth of more than a hundred feet, look up at the shaft, the top of the shaft of the steeple right now. Look up with you. At a depth of more than a hundred feet below the daylight, at long last, after months of work, the man finally struck what he was after. Up from the cracks in the limestone beneath his feet came bubbling a cold, clear substance. And from the depths of that pit, the seeker cried out towards the heaven a single word of ecstatic praise, Water! At last! Water! The Bible tells us that in time, this land, this cistern, this well would be bought for a hundred pieces of silver by Jacob, the grandson of Abraham and the father of Joseph. The place would become known as Jacob's well. And from its depths, there would rise the grace that sustained generation after generation of Israelites. In time, however, this region of Canaan known as Samaria became increasingly shunned by traditional Jews. For an offshoot of the Hebrew people established at nearby Mount Gerizim, a place of worship. And they declared that it was their conviction that it was here on this mountain, Gerizim, that God ought to be worshipped and glorified most. It was not to be in Jerusalem, they said, where most Jews worshipped, but there where they had built their temple, that God would be most greatly honored. This Difference of opinion resulted in a dispute that increasingly divided the traditional Jews from the Samaritans, their cousins, as they came to be called. And when traveling between the southern and the northern portions of Israel, most Jews and every serious religious Jew skirted Samaria altogether, avoided contact with these apostate people for, in their minds, they were the worst of sinners. One day, the Bible tells us Jesus and his disciples set forth from Judea in the south, from Jerusalem, back up towards the Sea of Galilee where they made their home. Strangely, however, John's gospel says, and I quote, that Jesus had to go through Samaria, had to go through Samaria. 
Now, I have said there was no geographical or practical or cultural reason why that should be so. No reason why he should have to go through Samaria. But the implication of the verse is that something compelled Jesus to choose that route. And not just any route, but one that led to a most historic place within Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, the scriptures say. A little village on the outskirts of that ancient city, Shechem. And Jacob's well was there, we're told. It's there where the seeker had dug the hole millennia before. The Bible says that Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And the literal text says he he sat on the curbstone of that well. His disciples, who were hungry, asked him if he did not want to go with them into town where they might rustle up some food. But Jesus apparently said no. And later on, he would tell us in this same passage, my food is to do the will. And remember that in the Bible, the word will and the word heart and the word spirit mean the same thing. My food is to do the will, he says. My hunger is to fulfill the heart's desire of him who sent me and to finish his work. My heart is to do his heart, is what Jesus is saying. So what was this work that Jesus came all this way to this particular place to finish? What could be so important (laughs) that he would choose to go through Samaria of all places where he as a Jew was certainly not welcome. What would move him to stay behind at that well when he was likely every bit as physically hungry as the disciples were from their long journey? What compelled Jesus to come to this place? It made absolutely no, no sense at all. How do we account for it? As the philosopher Blaise Pascal once observed, it is because the heart has its reasons. The heart has its reasons that reason does not know. And then the reasons start to become clear as we read on in the story. For the scriptures say it was about the sixth hour. It was high noon. It was the hottest part of the day when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. That she had come there then was on the surface every bit as unreasonable and strange as the fact that Jesus was there also. In the Middle East, women followed the same two basic rules when it came to drawing water as men in Florida and Arizona do when it comes to playing golf in July. First, they went out when it was cool. They had heavy things to carry. And so it was the tradition of the women to go in the cool of the morning or the cool of the late afternoon, never in the middle of the day. Secondly, they did not go alone. Drawing water was a social experience. It was something women did together the way men, and I guess women as well, play golf. It was a social affair. But here is this woman coming out at the peak of the heat and all by herself. And you have to ask, why? Why? 
The answer, I think, is because the heart has its reasons that mere reason does not know. I wish we had time to go line by line through the amazing conversation that follows. I'm going to just have to abbreviate it for you. Jesus digs into the conversation by making a simple request first. Will you give me to drink, he asks. Will you give me to drink? It's an act of humble solicitation. It's aimed at establishing a connection with her at the most basic human level. We all get thirsty, don't we? We understand what it is to be thirsty. Can you give me to drink? Can we help each other? Can you meet the basic human need here? But this foray elicits a response from the woman like a spade hitting hard-packed dirt. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? In other words, Jews and Samaritans, they don't hang out together. Don't you remember? They certainly don't share a common cup. Are you crazy? And I'm a woman and you're a man and you know that men don't speak to women in public and women never respond in public if spoken to by a man. Don't you know how things work? Don't you remember the way things are? Why are you talking to me? But Jesus answers her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, if you understood the circumstance, the opportunity in front of you, you would have started the conversation. You would have asked me. Because, dear one, what I'm asking for is simply a chance to give you what you're really looking for. I know you are thirsty, not just me. And you're thirsty at a level that I don't even know. You're thirsty for something you will never find in this well. But this time, the, the speaker's Spade, the seeker's spade here hits the limestone strata. Look, the woman says, you have nothing to even draw with. And that well is deep. You really think you're going to meet my needs, she's saying? You think you're all that? You're going to meet my needs? I've heard from men who think they're going to meet my needs. You, you think you're some kind of a special man? Yeah, every man thinks he's special. You really think you're all that. You're greater than St. Jacob, I suppose, who gave us this well in the first place. Give me a break. I've had enough promises. Enough promises for men. And as Jesus digs deeper in the conversation, the rock just seems to get harder and harder and the conditions darker. This woman's heart is not going to be found. It just won't be found. And then suddenly, the tip of Jesus' spade finds this little crack in the rock. And he tells her that he can meet her 
deepest thirst and make it go away and fill her up to overflowing with an eternal source of life, he tells her. And she starts for a single moment to open up and she says, in effect, I'd I'd like that. (laughs) I mean, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get to keep coming here so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here so I won't have to keep doing life the way I've been doing it. And Jesus asks her then to go and call her husband. And the rock of her heart at this moment suddenly seems to go all liquid for a moment as she stutters, I have no husband. And then with one last very precise swing, the seeker finds the bottom, the absolute bottom of the heart shaft, and Jesus gently says to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. For the fact is, you've had five of them. And the man you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman replies, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, I perceive that you know the truth about me. It is very hard sometimes to know the truth about people. Isn't that right? I think of the crusty surface of old Mr. Barlow, a math teacher I had back in high school, who all of us made fun of because he was this kind of rumpled, abrasive, cranky guy given to these flights of extreme anger. We never, we never as high school students ever thought about what might lie beneath the surface of this guy's life. We never thought about the darkness or pain that might be there someplace at the bottom of the heart shaft of this man's life. But the truth was that Mr. Barlow had once been a wonderfully affable man. He'd been coach of the basketball team. He had been a wide open, easygoing guy in his life until the day that he got the phone call that his wife and all of his children had been wiped out in an instant in a car accident. And the experience... That experience began a process in which anger laid over his heart a hundred feet of limestone. I think of the woman I know whose life is like a perfectly manicured lawn. Everything is trim. It's perfectly bordered. There's not a hair out of place. There is every appearance of complete perfection in her life except if you get very close every now and then, it strikes you as a little bit compulsive. But what none of her neighbors know is the childhood she had. She doesn't talk about it. She doesn't ever tell them about the shunting she experienced from one foster home to the next. She doesn't talk about the desperate longing she felt for a real home, for a parent who would love her unconditionally and keep her. 
And at the bottom of the heart shaft of her life is this terrible fear that she cannot make mistakes. And I tell you something, it's not reasonable. It's not reasonable. But the heart sometimes, it has its reasons that that kind of reason does not know. And she fears, she lives with this primal fear that she has to be perfect, that she's got to keep it all looking good and put together because if she doesn't, she'll be told to move on again. And now she just works feverishly to keep up appearances, drowning the pain in binges of various kinds, layering and layering over the fear. In many ways, as I've confessed in times past, I I have been driven myself too much by something that got broken in my own heart when I was very, very young. As a child of a a very successful family, it seemed like everybody in my family did something famous and big and dramatic and wonderful. And from the earliest age, the sense of needing to do that too, to keep up the family name or the family pattern, was, was a powerfully absorbed message. My family never, ever intended to do this to me. I know that. If they were listening, if they, when they're listening, I want to say, Mom and Dad, I apologize for this part of the message because I don't think they intended to, 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 to do this. But my heart formed around the message nonetheless. You are what you do. Your virtue and your value is directly related to what you produce, to the kind of grades you get, to the kind of schools you get into, to the kind of job you have, to, the, to, the, to how well you speak, to, to how well you perform on the athletic field or in the leadership field. And so this has made me, this core thing in my heart has made me this relentless maximizer, achiever, and workaholic, frankly. I live with this relentless anxiety that I have got to do more and better than I did yesterday. And it hurts my immediate family and my workmates far too often. And I wish sometimes I could just get somehow back down to the bottom of that heart shaft to that place where there was this kid just longing to drink in this truth. It's okay, Dan, for you not to produce anything sometimes. Why don't you just go out and play? I don't know. I don't know why the Samaritan woman became the way she was. Uh, We know why she couldn't come to the well that day at any other time but midday. We know why she wasn't there, why she was there outside of the company of other women. It was because no woman in town would have anything to do with this woman. I mean, she was a serial seducer. She was one of those people who know how to woo, but not how to love. Or maybe she was serially seduced. I, I, I don't know. What the Bible doesn't tell us is is how this really happened. Maybe her problem was her own sin. She was just one of those fatally flawed people, maybe. But maybe it was also because she'd suffered some brutal attacks from the sin of others over the years. Or maybe she had suffered from those terrible kinds of attacks from the great adversary, the attacker we talked about last week, who is always dedicated to sowing into people's lives these lies. 
these messages which do such profound damage to the most precious thing about you, that heart that God created to beat after his own heart. So maybe she'd been abused by a man when she was young, and now she had this bizarre intertwined thirst for and hatred of the affections of men. She had this weird feeling about home life. <laughs> and maybe it was that she had reached out for love, but then had to revert to the lie that she was safer on her own, that she had to go it alone in life. Perhaps her early experiences taught her that love can't really be trusted, that even the most apparent source of love will betray you in the end. And so she would dispose of men before they disposed of her. Perhaps she absorbed the lie that limits like chastity or fidelity. These things just hurt you. They just keep you from getting where you want to go in life. Maybe she believed that part of the attacker's strategy. Perhaps she'd seen enough loss and rejection in her life that she felt she could not change. She just had to keep doing this because she thought that, you know, in the end, gravity wins. In the end, in the end, you can't get out. You can't get up. Life can't change. I don't know, but this much I do know. I know that some of the hard and crusty or smooth people that we meet every day are hiding secrets they don't talk often about and maybe haven't even confessed to themselves very often. They have developed a way of managing in the world that seems ugly or awkward or maybe impressive. But it is merely the protective, adaptive pileup of spiritual limestone. It's the accretion of strategies of managing anger and fear or anxiety over a place in their heart way down deep that got injured that got broken, that got distorted very, very early on in the journey. And the question I want to ask you is, how is your heart? How's your heart? Is there something like this deep down inside you? Damaging you, driving you. A thirst for something that never happened. Or a thirst for some help that would have, should have been there when something happened. How's your heart? Do you thirst? Do you ache for something that will rise up to cleanse and to heal and to fill and to refresh that part of you that somewhere down there is dry and cracked? If that is so, then I have a message for you this morning. And the message is this. The seeker has come to your town. He's come to meet you. He's come a great distance. He's gone out of his way for you. To find you. He has come to put his spade into the soil of your life. He has come to dig down deep into the very ground of your being. 
He has come to work his day down to the very bottom of the heart shaft and to place his pick in that crack in your heart. He comes to help you find what is broken and to replace the lies that the attacker has been dropping into that broken place with the flood of his truth to rise up in you and to renew you, to bring up in that place the living water of his Holy Spirit, the wellspring of his life-giving heart. That's what he's here to do for you, for you. If your heart's broken someplace deep. Like the woman at the well, there's all kinds of temptation always. When we feel the touch of the Spirit of God to turn away, to back off, to resist, to shut it off. There's every temptation to just keep layering over, doing the same old thing. But I beg you, dear ones, if you felt the press of his spade, if you've heard the call of his voice today, let it in. What do you need to do to stay with Jesus long enough for him to do in you what he did ultimately in this woman at the well? What do you need to do? How do you do that? How do you stay with Jesus intentionally? Maybe it's time for you to seek the help of a good Christian counselor who can help you find out what's there at the bottom of the heart shaft. There are people sitting in front of my eyes right now who I know have a different, a better, a fuller life today because they finally did it. They finally sought out the help they needed to process some deep pain at the bottom of that heart shaft. Perhaps, perhaps you need to contact the church and let us help you get connected with a spiritual director. Somebody that can help you find some new constructive spiritual pathways in your life that will enable you to, to, to let Christ in on a more regular basis. Or maybe you just need to stop by the bookstore of the church and pick up one of those spiritual discipline handbooks we've got in abundance and start practicing some of those rhythms that creates space for the living water of God to flow through your life. You know, one thing I've noticed, I've never found somebody really spiritually healthy and whole who, who can get by on the amount of water that some preacher on a Sunday morning pours out. Honestly. Honestly, it's not enough. You have to be, you have to be connected to the living waters in an ongoing way through the course of your, of your, of your week. And so maybe some of those uh, three strategies would be helpful to you. Maybe it's time to get into a small group, a place where, where people really go after together those deep, dark places and, and encourage each other give, to, to find the living water of God in those places. Or maybe you need to look into our theophostic prayer ministry, ministry that Bob uh, helped to pioneer in our church's life, uh, that through a ministry of prayer and discernment helps take you to that place where Jesus can meet you at the bottom of the heart shaft and bring up his life. What do you need to do? What steps do you need to take to meet Jesus in an ongoing way? You know, the world offers plenty of quick fixes to what ails us. It offers a lot of quick fixes to the anger and the fear and the anxiety that afflict the heart of so many of us today. You can always find somebody peddling something to help you rationalize it or escape it or anesthetize it or even admire what ails you. Isn't that amazing? We've turned some of our greatest dysfunctions into things to be admired. We call it celebrity. I mean, you know, think about it. It's not reasonable. But Jesus says this. 
everyone who drinks that kind of water, that kind of cure, is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Water. Thank God, water for our hearts. And so, beloved, come to the well. Keep seeking that well. Drink deeply of what Jesus wants to give you. And find out. Let's find out together what it looks like, what it feels like to truly, to truly live. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, our loving Lord, Jesus Christ, help us hear your voice and respond to your call and find your life through the power of your Holy Spirit, your living water, your loving heart, we pray. Amen.